Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of The Value Guys. I'm a 30-year Wall Street veteran who has had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. This week, I look at the April 30th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Um, and I'm going to talk about three stocks out of that edition. Uh, Campbell's, uh, Philip Morris, which is, uh, you know, all the Philip Morris brands internationally. And then Del Monte Foods, which um, evidently does a bunch of dog food, which I guess I lost track of that. Um, before I get to that, I've got a couple caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Secondly, I may have a lot of conflicts of interest, including um, interests that are the opposite of yours, and so uh, beware of that. Third, I may be completely uninformed, so uh, keep that in mind. And finally, maybe most importantly, uh, I may be heavily drinking. Now, uh, this is my uh, professional, um, you know, uh, job during the week. and uh, But here it's after work. It's a hobby. And it's very late at night. In fact, uh, for, you know, those of you who are regular listeners, I got a little behind in the show. I like to do a weekly show and put up a little bit of a, a rant, which I've recently renamed it would help my portfolio, or it would help our portfolio, if. Um, but, um, you know, and then I do three stocks out of that week's Value Line Investment Survey. But I've been very busy. Um, I had a move, um, you know, uh, personally, then uh, moving my office. The markets have been much better, so people, you know... When things are bad, nobody wants to meet. Now people want to meet, and that's good, but that takes time. Um, I've got a very favorite relative graduating from college, so I'm excited about that. Um, and that's, uh, but that doesn't take time. But I'm just, I'm, I'm very proud of that person, whoever they may be. And so, uh, did I say we have a physical move? Anyway, for a lot of reasons travel I've just gotten behind in the show so tonight I'm doing them back to back it's very late um, I've been overserved because I'm just I'm doing them back to back and I think my voice is starting to go so that might explain a lot as well anyway I'm gonna try to keep the show short please see all my caveats um, and I, that, I guess, was one, at www.thevalueguys.com. And there's uh, bios there, information. There's links to about four and a half years of shows. There's a link to um, Val's Best Ideas. I've been keeping a best, best ideas list for about four years, and the way I manage it is I simply have a, a page in Yahoo Finance. It tracks the shares I bought. I always... Uh, by the same amount of each uh, favorite name. Probably every two or three weeks I choose a, a stock that's a favorite and gets on that list. 
And I did try to do a little trading in there, but it didn't work out. It was time-consuming. Uh, but I hang that file on uh, on the homepage. Um, it's not live, but at least it gives you a link and all the links to the individual tickers work, uh, courtesy of Yahoo Finance, which is a great resource. And so there's that. And then uh, what else did I want to mention here on the show? Oh, I've been keeping a uh, a Facebook page, and so I put up. Um, Really, I've been a little lazy there. I could be doing more, I suppose. But I do have dialogues. I answer email there. Um, and um, I do tend to put uh, easy links to the show there so that you can, um, I mean, iTunes works too. But if you're a Facebook person, you can find me as Val Hughes dash the value guys. And I pop up. And uh, and so uh, that's one way to track the show. Um all right, well, let's get on with it. It's very late. I need to go to bed soon. But I didn't want to miss this week's issue, first, because I wanted to get caught up, and secondly, uh, because it's a pretty good issue um, in, in the sense that there seems to be some pretty good value in there this week, and in food particularly. Stable companies um, in past cycles, you know, some of these stable brand companies have gotten meaningful premiums. Um, in terms of valuation. That doesn't seem to be happening yet this go-around. And it could be that brands will never have the value they once did, um, in part because of the Internet and easier to shop, easier to check ingredients, easier to build trust without the brand name. You can um, just do your own research and build trust that way. So there's lots of reasons to think that brands may have lost some of their edge. But on the other hand, when Walmart starts shrinking up the number of brands that they're carrying on their shelves, and a lot of products are still going to require physical distribution. I mean, you can't email a box of cereal to somebody. So it still has to move from a factory into somebody's home somehow. And so, um, you know, having the ability to move their product through the channel I'm sure is a giant edge uh, for them. Um, so in any case, I have a couple of those to talk about. Um, but bef- before I do that, I want to do my segment I like to call It Would Help Our Portfolios If, which used to just be a rant, but now it's I've got a name for it because it seems like it might be a little more meaningful. So what's my rant this week? Uh, well, it would help my portfolio if... Uh, they wouldn't let the 15% tax on dividends expire. And um, I know it's good to raise revenue. Well, I don't know that, but let's face it. We're in a period where um, we have a enormous budget problem. And, um, you know, much like the Republicans under Reagan uh, cut tax rates in hopes that there couldn't be any more spending, um you know the democrats now seem to be raising spending because now there have to be tax rate increases it's kind of an interesting reverse and uh and so you know things cycle around but uh, and, and there's taxes that probably are not as bad as other taxes you know they're kicking around some type of consumption tax 
um, you know, maybe you want to do that. It hits everyone the same, whatever. But a tax that's particularly bad is a dividend tax. And here's the reason. Um, dividends are paid by companies using after-tax dollars. So a company has a business. They earn profits. If they're lucky, a lot of businesses fail. So there need to be rewards if you manage to stay profitable because, let's face it, profit, uh, which somehow got a bad name, is really a license to continue in business. And it can't be any profit. It has to be profit that's high enough to deliver market returns or better to the investors that put up the money, that bought the factories, that pay the people, that buy the raw materials, etc. So, um, uh, you know, when you, when you need capital to grow the economy and when growth is important, it's good to attract capital. So I really don't like uh, the expiration of this dividend tax. And here's the problem with it. Um, there's two big problems with it. The first one is, from a sort of a capital-raising point of view, when companies need to raise capital to grow, which is what they want, they can choose debt or equity. Um, if they choose debt, they're going to pay those investors with interest expense, and that interest expense is tax-deductible. So if the interest on that, let's say, $100 is 5%, they pay $5, that is a 5% um, interest, yes, but after tax, it's going to cost them 3%. Okay. On the other side, if they use equity, equity typically has a little bit of a higher yield than debt because of the higher risk and return. So let's say that's 7%, but that 7% is after tax. It's not tax deductible. So um, the company that's facing a need to raise capital right now is looking at 3% for the debt versus 7% for the equity. Now, um, that's not changing. In fact, even last time around when um, people were trying to get uh, government excited about equalizing the playing field between debt and equity. The goal would be to either make interest also uh, an after-tax expense or make dividends tax-deductible just the way interest is and equalize that so the companies aren't biased toward choosing debt um, when really it's better um, for the economy, generally speaking, if you can encourage more equity. Certainly the economy would be on a sounder footing with less debt. We have these tax codes that are encouraging more debt. And that's a problem. On the other side, you've got the investors who get to decide what they're going to invest in. Um, right now, um, you have a 15% tax on dividends. So and a, uh, a typical income tax on interest. So for the same, you know, uh, yield, let's say, I'm going to have an 85% retention on the dividend versus a 60% retention on the, uh, on the bond or the, you know, the, the, the treasury security, the, the money market. And so again, 
what we've had in recent years since this tax rate came in is a little bit of an incentive from at least investors to buy stocks versus debt uh, that were paying dividends and um, it was a way to allow companies to maybe have a little bit of an easier time uh, raising equity and encourage equity ownership because it was being driven by the investor side. Um, and so that's been a good trend. Of course, if you let this tax rate expire, that's going to be bad um, for that trend. And again, you'll, you'll drive more um, companies interested in raising debt. The other big problem is for those investors on a fixed income that own stocks um, and, and they're using, you know, taxable accounts, then, uh, you know, they're going to have... <laughs> they're going to have their after-tax retention go from 85% to 60%, which means that the tax is going to go from 15% to, in effect, 40%, and that's nearly a triple in the tax on the dividends. In terms of the impact in the stock market, I think most dividend-paying stocks, as we get closer to this, are going to be under um, some selling pressure, and that's simply because the after-tax yield will be falling and the way for it to rise back up and maintain a gap with bonds uh, will be to, um, you know, to, to have some downward pressure on the, on the pricing. So that's going to be a problem for investors. I think from a pure fairness point of view, one way to think about um, this uh, dividend tax is to think about the fact that dividends are coming out of income from companies. Companies have already paid a 34% tax, which I believe is among the highest in the world. And so there's some deep incentive to drive businesses overseas to pay a lower corporate tax, and that's a big long-term problem. But uh, even beyond that, uh, let, let's look at the fairness issue. When you tax a company's profits 34%, that means the owners of that company are retaining 66%. But in a corporate structure, they don't yet actually have the cash. So let's say you want to pay all that cash out to the owners as a dividend. So you pay out the entire 66%. Under current law, of course, um, we're going to have uh, an 85% retention on that, the inverse of a 15% tax rate. So 85% of 66%, my rough math here is 50, 56%. So of all the um, income earned by the company, um, you know, pre-tax, it's going to sort of get to you at a 56% retention, which is roughly what you'd pay as an individual um, let's say, at a 40% at a rate. So maybe the government had that in mind when they lowered the tax rate on dividends to 15%. Could be. But now what we're going to have is that that tax rate on dividends is going to rise to normal income tax rates. So the retention is going to go from 85% to, let's say, 60%. So the company's already paid a 34% tax, so the retention at that level, the corporate level is 66%, but now I'm going to pay 40% more. So uh, that's a 60% retention. So the 66% re I've retained times the 60% I'm now retaining 
gets me to a total retention of about 40% of the original dollar that was earned by the company. So um, between the government taking taxes at the corporate level of 34% and then again at the personal level of 40%, they have in fact captured 60% of that dollar that was just trying to trickle down to get into the owner's pocket as dollars earned for investment made. So um, I'm against the dividend uh, tax hike as a result of the expiration of these tax incentives. And, uh, and I think it will help our portfolio if uh, they don't enact it. So there, that's my rant. Uh, I'm sorry if that lingered on. Anyway, it's getting very late here. Uh, let me go through three ideas very quickly. They're pretty straightforward, so maybe I can save a little time this week and uh, just um, just give the highlights. So let's see. First up, Campbell Soup, ticker CPB. Let me take a sip here. CPB, page 1905. What do I like about Campbell Soup? Well, first I recognize it, and it's very late, so that's an advantage. Um, it's a 14 multiple PE multiple. That's a discount. There's a 3% yield. These num, you know, this data is right across the top of the value line, so I, that's easy for me to see. I look there. Uh, then I look at the returns on capital. They're very high. Um, so you know, that's pretty good. I'm looking here through equity to see if there were any meaningful write-offs where the accountants are just tricking us to cutting equity to improve the returns, but. Uh, well, there was a big event of that sort in the 2007-2008 time frame, but when I look at the share count, it looks like that could have easily come from them buying a lot of shares in the $40, $30 range when book value was, you know, 3 and $4. So, um, you know, you retire, uh, you, you retire more shares than you do income. Um, per share, and that helps your your returns. Um, so that's very positive. Their operating margin has been steadily moving from the sort of 19 percent to the 21 percent. It's been very stable, so I like that. My theme on Campbell Soup would simply be: you have a stable oligopoly, um, you have a brand that has built up trust, you have a brand, you have a that you know, and a category that will be inflation protected, and that might be a concern with what's going on with the you know money supply. Um, you have a consumer preconception about the quality of this brand, and that's a great cost advantage. If you want to save on promotion and advertising, you don't have to pay to advertise a notion that's already in people's minds. So it saves you money relative to competitors. You can pass that on as better pricing than they have. Or you can keep it and charge a little more, have a higher return on capital. Maybe that allows you to invest at a higher rate and ultimately drive costs down faster than competitors, and you can win that way. So um, either way, if you have a well-known brand in a somewhat commodity market where you, know, you can't prove which soup is better the way an industrial product can prove it's faster or cheaper 
or stronger than a competitor. This is a lot of perception, and so a brand can drive share, which can further drive uh, competitive advantages, and they seem to be taking advantage of that cycle. So I like that. It's hard to break it. Um, they have a lot more brand uh, you know, names here than you might think. Of course, Campbell's, but they also have the uh, Liebig soups. I'm pronouncing that wrong, I'm sure, but it's, I believe, German uh, brands. They have Swanson Pepperidge Farms. They have uh, Campbell's evidently has uh, moved into the pasta area, canned pastas. They own V8, Prego sauces, Godiva chocolates. They have uh, some, they just bought some kind of uh, snack food business in Australia, so that makes sense. Let's see, 30% of their business is international. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's a good business. It's you know, not as diversified as some, still a lot U U.S. reliant here, but that may be an opportunity as they um, take the brand internationally and, you know, wealth around the world grows to where you've got women in the workforce and you need people to make canned soup. That could be part of what's going on here longer term. Uh, the valuation is not super cheap, but I like the stability here. I'm looking at nine times EBITDA, which means that um, if I look at enterprise value as total equity value, so shares times price, plus the debt, and debt here relative to book equity is pretty high, so it shows up as 68% debt to capital. But, you know, book value here is about $4, and the stock's at 36 so, um, you know, that's not a fair, a fair measure. You, you, you know, you look at debt to market value, and they've got about $2.6 in debt, $12 billion in market value. That's a better reflection of the risk, I would say. And from a coverage point of view, you know, you can look at some data here. Their long-term interest paid last year was $90 million. They've got $2.2 billion in debt. I do some quick math. That's less than 5% cost of debt. That's pretty good. And so they're using debt that costs less than 5% to drive return on capital in the 20-plus percent range. And, and that's... Uh, you know, that means they're obviously earning the spread on that capital that they're borrowing, and that's a wise use of capital. So it shows up as 68% debt to cap, but the interest is nine times covered, and, um, you know, the book equity here is is low. Um, and I can't really tell why, because the buybacks, when you look over history, stock buybacks, don't seem to be enough to account for that. Book value, you know, in the... Back in the 1995-96 time frame was also three bucks a share. It turned negative in 01. You know, there's something that went on here in terms of a recap or a you know spin out or something that I can't quite get at from just the data that's here. But um, you know, the book value here is is simply. Uh, too low, in my opinion, to, to drive this. So there's been some write-off back in time, but it, who cares? It doesn't matter. The earnings uh, and cash flow numbers are enough to drive uh, some thoughts about valuation. Um, EBITDA here is a 20% operating margin value line. We know the operating margin is an EBITDA number. So that gives us some um, 
a billion six in cash flow on 14.8 in enterprise value that's equity value plus debt and that's a, a nine multiple if I take the inverse of that one over nine that is some sort of estimate as to my cash on cash return 11 percent and uh, value line says Campbell's going to grow earnings at nine percent which would give me about a 20 percent total return and that might be sort of my minimum uh, here to to buy it um, but it's so stable that I, I got to go with that. Campbell Soup, ticker CPB, page 1905. Next up, uh, and I've talked about this before over the years, Del Monte Foods, DLM is the ticker, page 1910. Um, Del Monte Foods is, uh, according to Value Line, one of the largest producers and distributors of premium quality branded food and pet products for the U.S. So I didn't know about the pet part. Let's see. Um, their brands include Del Monte, Contadina, S&W, Nine Lives, what? Kibbles and Bits, what? Sausages, Pepperoni, Pounce, Milk Bone, Meow Mix, and College Inn Brands. So who knew? You know, I uh, maybe conveniently forgot that, but and it doesn't tell me the breakdown, but these guys do a bunch of brands for pets. And so I think, um, I don't know this at all, but I think that pets, you know, once you start buying a brand, I don't know that you switch it up much on your pets. I don't know. I know the last time I had a pet, I was a kid, and I uh, don't remember my mom really switching up the food and I don't have a pet now so who knows but um, that might be my uh, uh, my theory that those are pretty brand you know stable brands and the thing about stability when you think about it that means low risk that means you can accept a lower yield because you don't need the higher return to offset the risk and lower yield means higher multiple so even though you have lower growth earnings, um, you know, they're more stable, more predictable, and that, you know, that's a higher multiple. Bear in mind, when you have a treasury security selling at a 4% yield, um, that's 25 times earnings. So, um, you know, stability is valuable, and I think you get that here. And also the Del Monte name, you know, that's got to be pretty stable. Um one of the things I, I I like here, of course, is the valuation. It's 14 times earnings. It's uh, seven and a half times EBITDA, which I think is around a 13% cash on cash return. Value line says they're going to grow at 14%. That gets me up into the, you know, mid to upper 20s as a total return, and that gives me a lot of room to be very wrong about the future here. But again, it's uh, it's brand. And it's um, it's branded foods. This isn't the Del Monte Fresh Fruit Company. That's a different public company, and we've also talked about that here on the show. Um, this, I think, is more the canned Del Monte products. And uh, same as Campbell, you know, as wealth per capita grows around the world, or um, <coughs> you know, free economies end up attracting more women into the workforce, women that might traditionally be at home uh, cooking, then there's more and more room for these, um, you know, branded products.
products in the home to take the place of of um, custom you know cooked meals and pets I think pets buying branded food that's got to be among the higher end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs I think uh, so you know again wealth driving pets and then another level before you actually are buying them branded food at the store versus making them fend for themselves in the yard so I don't know you know what the growth rate is there I do know there's this undertone at least in America and maybe other advanced Western cultures where the pet is really becoming part of the home part of the family and so to the extent that even in the advanced economies um, you know people were just throwing their pet scraps from the table uh, there's some trend that uh, you know they need to be treated like humans and maybe they deserve these brands too and maybe that explains why Del Monte is selling pet food because it's interchangeable <coughs> in terms of who's buying it uh, and when they're buying it I, I really don't know anything about all that but I'd say the valuation looks terrific um, the margins are pretty good and they've been rising into the mid and upper teens so I like that um, the returns on capital aren't great, but they've been rising. And sometimes that just suggests they haven't written something off. They probably should write off. When I look back here um, over time, you know, I don't see a total asset number, but um, equity, you know, has been sort of stably moving higher for over just about 10 years. So that suggests there hasn't been any crazy write-offs. Share count comes down at a pretty stable rate over time so that looks pretty decent. It's just a good solid you know name. The valuation's great. Returns aren't great but maybe that just keeps other people out of the business. It's hard to make money. Um, the valuation is kind of reflecting that and historically speaking it doesn't get much of a multiple. Um, in fact the argument that this should advance in valuation is really not what I'm making um, even if the valuation stays right here you know a one over uh, seven and a half times is about 13 percent that's cash on cash that's if nothing changes I'm earning that the cash is coming to me and then we're gonna grow at about 10 percent so my values going up if I get an expansion in the multiple which I might view as also a, a decline in the earnings yield then that's just gravy for me and I get an even higher return. So Del Monte Foods, DLM, page 1910. And then finally, and I'm sure uh, this is good for everyone that the show's finally about to be over, Philip Morris, ticker PM, um, page 1991. This is what uh, was left uh, internationally of Philip Morris um, when they split that company into two and there was a U.S. business that I think is Altria now and um, and at one point had Kraft although that's now spun out independently <coughs> excuse me and this is um, the international uh, team managing Marlborough, Philip Morris, Chesterfield, Parliament, L&M, Bond Street which I don't know what that is I don't know why it doesn't say Merit here you know I don't smoke now but I did years and years ago maybe they don't even make Merits anymore who knows but 
I thought they owned that, but it doesn't say that here. Uh, the business is, um, well, 46% Europe, 22% Middle East and Africa. I mean, they should split that probably. Asia, 20%, Latin America, 12 has factories in 35 countries. So, you know, they're pretty international. One of the nice things about international cigarettes is you don't have these rules uh, in general against advertising like you had in the United States. So you have the ability to go out and promote the product. And some of these new economies, uh, particularly China and India, you know, they don't have the curbs on smoking and the taboos at least at this point that we have here, as some of these nations become um, a little wealthier, uh, one of the things they do with the discretionary income is they buy cigarettes. And so my theme is, it's an addictive drug, and these guys have a somewhat of a monopoly in many places in the world. And they're partners with the government, because to the extent that the government lays in uh, really high taxes, sin taxes, it's an easy place to go for taxes. Everyone understands why you would tax a smoker. So the government is really your partner. And so while, you know, the tax is punishment, in effect, it also reduces the risk of, um, you know, you being uh, voted out of business or who knows what, because the government begins to rely on the flow of, of tax dollars uh, coming from the sale of your product. And so, um, again, just like I said on the bond, I think that can be valuable because of the stability of the stream. Now, you got to worry, of course, that um, cultural interests and, you know, taboos change. And just like in the U.S., smoking begins to tail off in other countries. But, you know, that may be a long way off. Um, who knows? There aren't signs of it at this point in India and China and uh and Europe and the U.S. seem to be pretty stable, um, certainly lower, much lower than they were, but somewhat stabilizing in terms of the uh, number, uh, percentage of the population that's smoking. So, you know, what you have here at the core is a pretty good business, um, monopoly with a government partner and high margins. Uh, they're very stable in the 17, 18%. And uh, return on capital here is in the, upper 20s, it hits 30%. This company was spun out in 06, so they just split up the two companies, and I sure, I'm sure it went out in a fair manner. The returns at uh, Altria are, are probably just as high, and so um, that seems like it should be a somewhat sustainable uh, return, and as high as that is, you have to say, well, why is that? Well, because it's an addictive drug, it, people are somewhat, um, you know, it's a commodity. So brand is uh, very valuable. <coughs> it's a consumer product, so it's taste. You can be influenced by brand, and these brands are, you know, hundred year olds. They invented, invented the category. So um, my guess is these high returns are sustainable, and the valuation here is very reasonable. And you get this international diversification. It's eight times EBITDA which again is the total equity value of $98 billion. The debt here is $15 billion. And then I subtract out cash of $1.5 billion. Um, so if we bought the whole company, the equity and the debt, had the rights to all the cash flow, it would cost us $110 billion. And what we would get for our money 
is uh, you get the revenues here of about 66 billion and uh, operating margin of 18%, which I'm just going to round to 20% because it's easy. And you know what's that? About 13 uh, billion. And so um, it's a little high, but it just makes the math easier for me. That's about eight times one over eight, 12 and a half percent. So if we bought this whole thing, that's 12 and a half percent. What can you get at the bank? Not that much. And you're going to grow. Um, Value Line doesn't even bother to estimate the growth rate here because the company is new, but it's really not. So I don't know. I'm sure there's other analysts estimating growth. Um, a decent estimate is simply population growth minus a little bit because, let's face it, the numbers are coming down. But then you add on to that pricing, and then in terms of earnings growth, you add on to that uh, so you got the pricing, price growth, revenue growth, the cost growth, which in some cases is not that high. You don't have to add more dollars into advertising um, because it's a mass media oftentimes. And so you get some economies of scale on that. Um, and, uh, you know, their margin has been improving a little bit here and there over time. So could it get to 20%? Yeah, maybe. Anyway, uh, looks like a pretty cheap stock, stable business. Philip Morris, I think it's really Philip Morris International, ticker PM, um, page 1991. You do get a yield here, too, which is probably pretty sustainable, 4.6%. And that's it. That's all I have. The show's run a little late this week. <coughs> Favorite name this week is going to have to be uh, Campbell Soup. I think they're giving it away, ticker C. P B page nineteen oh five. That's all I have everyone this week. Um, catch all of our shows and caveats and interesting information at www.thevalueguys.com and thanks for listening and everybody. Bye bye.